Well, good morning. Great to see you guys this morning. Excited about our time together. If you are a guest here, or if it's just been a really, really long time, and the last time you were here, I didn't have so much gray hair. I'm Keith Collins. I'm one of the pastors here at Lakeview Christian Center. And this morning is going to be a little bit different for us in, in what we do normally. Our time in this service is intentionally reserved for the preaching of God's Word. Um, we're going to have a, a conversation this morning, but it's a conversation that we believe reflects what God's Word has to say about a very important area of life that we all are interacting with. But let me start us today by anchoring what we're going to be doing in God's Word. So I want you to look at a Bible passage here with me just for a moment. This is from the book of Colossians. It's written about the mid-50s, first century A.D. Apostle Paul says this, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And the passage goes on, and most of us read this passage, by the way, because we're learning the principle about putting off and putting on. But notice the context in which this is being taught, right? And here's as those who are going to follow Christ, what we're taught to put on in the place of the things that we've just been told to put off. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Well, this is an interesting passage. It's 55 AD approximately. The biggest event in church in human history has taken place. Jesus Christ has come to the earth. God himself has come to the earth as a man. And he has done what needed to be done in order for man to be reconciled to God. And man now has been reconciled to God and many are filled with the very life of God in them and they've gathered as the church. They are the people of God and that's who Paul's writing to in this section. But what you encounter in this section is what I'm gonna call a humanity sandwich, right? What you sandwich in between these great truths about holiness because right? we're called to holiness. If you've come to know God, your life has an agenda to it. And you're called to something. So we're called to a life of holiness, a life like God. And to clarify that, Paul stands up and says, you know what? To be like God means to stop having these attitudes. And it means to start having these. And so there's this sandwich that gets created. So on both ends of this passage, there's things to be done with for the sake of holiness, and there's things to put on for the sake of holiness, and then right in the middle, there's humanity. And it's a quick brief, but it's a loaded issue. It's 
several layers of ethnic and racial diversity that are trying to live in the same church in the first century. And surprise, surprise, they're having problems. Can you imagine? How shocking is that? They're having severe problems, right? Now, if you study much of the first century, and I won't go into that this morning, but if you study the first century, there was this sudden, enormous diversity. Their culture was much more diverse than ours was, actually, because it had racial diversity, ethnic diversity, class diversity at a level that just is greater than what we struggle with in many of those categories. But God had done this miraculous thing in welcoming anybody and everybody into his kingdom and calling them to walk together in unity. But they were having problems. Now fast forward from 55 or so AD all the way to 1964. And apparently we're still having problems, right? I came across this book, was written a number of years ago, but its setting is 1964. This picture is 1964 out in front of a church in Memphis, a Presbyterian church. Actually, it's the First Methodist Church in, in uh, Memphis. The last segregated hour, the Memphis Neolens and the campaign for Southern Church desegregation. And this catches my attention because this is in my lifetime. In my lifetime, you have a, an image of hardened, attitude-filled men standing in front of a church, making a statement to those of a different race, you are not welcome here. In spite of what happened when Jesus Christ went to the cross, in spite of the unbelievable reconciliation that any of us, as we heard in the word today, any of us get picked to be part of the kingdom of God, there were some who stood and looked at others and found a reason for them not to be welcomed into this setting. And this is 1964. This is not the first century. So apparently... This race thing is a problem, apparently. <laughs> I don't know. Saw it in the news, I think, somewhere. It could be a little difficult for us to deal with. And, and, and it's an emotionally weighted problem. Right? I mean, you, you hear what's in this passage here? Now, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander obscene talk and that obscene talk and slander where it's just this aggressive, forceful, destructive way of speaking to one another. And when I read that list, I almost feel like I've, I've just watched the evening talk shows. This is the way we have learned to talk to each other and to relate over this issue. Now, this is and continues to be a very emotionally weighted issue. Now, and, and maybe... We've learned to manage our emotions a good bit in it. I will say this. I, I don't know that I encounter anger in many conversations about race with people, but animation, people come to life when they talk about this subject. Christians come to life. No matter what color you are, you come to life over this topic. And so in some ways I realize today we, we open a bit of a Pandora's box in this subject. And, and we open it in a real challenging way because... It's an enormous subject. It would take us hours to even discuss all the variables that are involved, but we've only got one hour. And so let me promise you this. We're probably going to not land in your category the way you wish we would land in your category. And that's my way of getting me and Ben off the hook here for uh, what exactly you think we're going to be able to accomplish today. 
The reason why we're doing this today, I, mean, I, I realize we're in need of a much larger conversation in this area and a much larger biblical view, and we will do that. But the reason why we're doing this today is because God has sovereignly blessed us with a relationship uh, with a man who has really been used in an interesting way in this country to create a conversation in the category of race in a way that few have been able to do it. And to see issues that sit in both black and white sides of the discussion and to talk about them and to seek to bring folks together in a way that's extremely helpful but extremely rare, quite honestly. And the blessing for us is that Ben and Kirsten and their children have been a part of our family here for the last few years. And so we uniquely have this privilege to not only hear a man who's, who's quite capable and gifted and insightful in talking about this subject, but he's doing life among us, which is an interesting thing when you consider the challenges of race coming together. Because you look out at our faces here as an audience, and we are a predominantly white church. We are increasingly becoming diverse in that category. I thank God for that. But I am, I'm going to intentionally, yeah, you can, you can thank God for that as well. Today, I'm going to intentionally, and I've talked with Ben about doing this, uh, intentionally tilt the conversation in a particular direction. There's a lot we could cover, um, and there's a lot we're not going to cover. Not because it's not worthy to be talked about, but because we just can't get to everything. But what I thought would most serve us is we are a predominantly white church wanting to do fellowship and ministry and mission together for the sake of the gospel with a diverse group of people in our community. And so whether that's African-American community, Hispanic community, I mean, God has opened Asian community. God's opened some doors for us in each of those categories. And we want to be able to step into it and live in it. But we don't get each other. We don't understand each other. We can come together really quickly over issues of holiness because we identify with the Bible and no matter what color our skin is, the Bible speaks to everybody the same way. You're called to live a certain life. You know what we don't get is our humanity. White doesn't get black humanity. Black doesn't get white humanity. And yet when you get saved, your humanity comes with you. Did you notice that? Right? If, you were, if you're an edgy person and you come to the kingdom, you're, you're an edgy Christian now. If you're a quiet person you come to the kingdom, you're a quiet Christian now. If you're a white person you come into the kingdom, you're, you're a white Christian. If you're a black person you come into the kingdom, you're a, a black Christian. There are, there's humanity that you and I have been soaking in, marinating in for years. Attitudes, ideas, ways of doing life, ways of looking at life and seeing some things. And we don't exactly see the same stuff when we come together as black and white. But yet God is calling us on a mission together. And God is calling us to demonstrate the unity that God has within himself as a people, no matter what our color is. And so I'm going to tilt this quite a bit. I really want most of what we're going to be doing today to help a white audience understand a black world. And reading Ben's book, interacting with him, and interacting with others that we've had as part of the fellowship through the years 
has been extremely helpful for me, but it over and over and over again rises up categories where I listen to that and I go, that, that doesn't even come to mind for me when I look at that. And that doesn't come to mind for me either when I look at that, but it does for you, okay. Well, help me understand that. And my understanding, we're called to understand one another, right? Live with each other in an understanding way is an important principle. So today is help for us to understand. It will not solve all the issues. It, it will not address every angle uh, that it could possibly address, but I think it'll be extremely helpful. And uh, I'm so very grateful to have as a friend and as part of this fellowship for the last few years, our guest, he's not really a guest, he's just part of the church sitting in a different location today. What, you, what's the I mean, you left your family, you left them by yourself over there? You just abandoned them. Please welcome Ben Watson. Had to get a little closer. That was a long walk from over there. Yeah, I know these legs tired. Yeah, you're so out of shape. You know, his legs are tired, tired and sore. That's what I've always thought about you. This guy is so out of shape. You know, you're touching me so soft. Um. <laughs> oh, Pastor, we're not talking about that today. Are we? No, 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 we're not. Uh, well, let's 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 cover a couple of really important issues first here. Uh, grade the Saints in terms of their draft. How'd they do? Um, a, B, I'm C, gonna, D. As long as we got Brandon Cooks, you know, well, they got Brandon Cooks. I think they're good. <laughs> is, where is Brandon? Is he here? I pointed him out. No, I, I, think, I think the Saints did a good job with defense first, obviously. Defense, yeah. we struggled on defense last year. It's no secret. Um, you know, I think the pass rush is something that we really need. So getting that defensive end is, it was a great move. Coach Payton, even though he wants to, Coach Payton, if he could, he would draft Every single player would be offense. Every player. Am I lying? Every single player would be offense. He loves offense. He loves to score points. He had to go defense with the first pick. Had to. Um, so, so I think he did a good job there, kind of shoring up the defense a little bit. And um, the, the, the crazy thing with the draft is these guys are coming from college. They have no idea what they're getting into. Uh, the development from now until really the second year when they stop being rookies, really, is when you see the progress. I mean, there's some great guys that came out of college and they didn't get the development they needed or the coaching they needed, and they end up playing a few years and that's it. Um, but it's important for them to get here and every team to get to their teams um, and get immersed in the playbook, get the coaching, take their lumps, and then get through that first year. And that's when you can really see how good a draft is right. a year or two later. We'll have to wait. Can you remember back that far to your second year? I can it was, Do you know how old it, this guy is? It was a long, long time ago. <laughs> the TV was in black and white. <laughs> um, we walked uphill both ways in the snow <laughs> to practice. Yeah, yeah. I we had two-a-days, Brandon. <laughs> Not this one-a-day stuff. Yeah, that's right. Look, when I was in high school, we had three-a-days, so don't even talk to me about two-a-days. <laughs> I did, too, actually. All right, all right. Unbelievable. Know, at least we have a few things in common. Um, <laughs> all right, more importantly, how are you guys getting settled in Baltimore? Uh, we are in transit right now. Uh, we started football two weeks ago, April 18th. So I've been going there during the week, Monday through Thursday, and then coming back on the weekends. Um, I did that the first week. And then the second week, uh, I was just so out of my comfort zone with the family not being there. I said, y'all got to come up here too. So they came up last week between Monday through Thursday. We did some things in Baltimore, went to the aquarium, the Inner Harbor, um, experienced uh, some of the food, uh, which is good, but you know, it's New Orleans. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, just being honest. Um, you know, but, but, but we, we found a home. We're actually gonna move uh, in May, May 10th. So next week will be our last week here All at right. the church. Um, yeah, so uh, on that note, I will say that the last three years have been uh, tremendous. 
uh, one of the things in the National Football League is you, you have to be ready to move around a lot um, sometimes. And so we've, we've made uh, three moves when we came here. That was our third move um, going into my 10th year back then. And I was 13. Um, and one of the, yeah, <laughs> black and white. Um, and, and, and one of the hard things when you go to a new place is finding uh, family and community. And uh, I remember going to New England, us getting married and looking for churches and settling on one. Then in Cleveland, we had a church, but we weren't as plugged in as we were here. And the people here, um, when we first moved here, we didn't know where we were going to church. We visited maybe two churches, and then a friend of Kirsten's um, actually introduced us to Lakeview. And coming here, we stay here because, of number one, the truth is being taught from the pulpit. Um, b bottom line. And that is, that is something that... Um, that is very, very important to us, uh, that there be unadulterated truth being spoken. Um, obviously, you know, we're going to talk about this a little bit. We're going to talk about styles of worship, styles of music, um, you know, what you want the community to look like, uh, the church body to look like, what makes you feel comfortable. With the, but the number one priority when you go to a church is, is the pastor preaching the Bible, and is he not scared to preach the Bible? And so coming here, um, I just have to say thank you to all of you for embracing us, for making us part of your family. Um, you know, I remember when we first came here and the kids went to uh, Children's Church and they came back and they were telling me about like Aaron and Moses and like real detailed stories. Like they weren't saying, you know, yeah, we watched a movie and ate some crackers. No, <laughs> they were back there like giving, you know, a, a whole description of the gospel and giving me all, all the commandments. And I mean, they were really learning stuff sure. back there. And I think that that's what really also drew us because, you know, when you teach children, it's important to get that in them while they're young, train them up while they're young. Um, and so what's being done in the children's ministry uh, is going to have... Um, lasting effects when those kids get out here into the big room and then when they get out there into the world. Yeah. Um, so that was one of the things that I, I just wanted to say thank you all um, for what you've done for us and for loving our family and uh, we're going to miss you terribly. Yep, we're going to miss you too, man. Well, uh, I know it's a, it's a challenge to, to relocate, I'm sure. It's a challenge to find another family to be a part of spiritually. So you guys will keep them in your prayers as they pick up and, and start again in, in Baltimore, that God would lead them and place them where he wants to both minister to your family and use you as well you. as he has here uh, among us. Um, well, let's see where we can start. We've got so many things that we can talk about. Um, I think one of the things that, you know, that obviously there are, there are differences that we want to we wanna try and understand today as we have a conversation um, you know, there'd be categories where you and I and many couldn't be more different, right? You're black, I'm white. Last time I checked, my, my kids I'm, actually call me translucent, so I'm beyond white. I'm good looking. Yeah. That one. <laughs> You're all right. You are. You are. No. Oh, thanks. How about I'm great that. looking? You're you good looking. Can you shut his mic off when he says stuff like that? Can you, can you be a little quicker with the microphone, please? Um, well, you know, we do have some things in common. Uh, tremendously gifted athletes, both of us. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's true. Um, yeah. Knee, knee injury. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. ACL tear. Been under the knife. There you, know? you go. Okay. So it doesn't just happen to old people, for some of y'all keep ragging me about that. What we have in common that's most important that keeps us in relationship more than anything else and creates the conversation that we're able to have is the spiritual connection that we have because we are, are both children of the living God yeah. by the work of Jesus Christ that was 
bloodshed equally for regardless of color, regardless of background, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Our, our spiritual ancestry we share. Yeah. Um, so let, let, me, let me let you share a little bit about, you know, your spiritual journey, how you grew up, how you came to know Christ. And yeah. Well, I grew up in a place called Norfolk, Virginia, which ironically is not too far from, ba- from Baltimore, a few hours. Um, I grew up uh, in a family with two parents who loved the Lord. Uh, my father's actually a pastor now in South Carolina, so we were taught right from wrong growing up. Um, I'm the oldest of six kids, and we aren't trying to get to six. Honestly, we're at five now, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, six is so far in the future, but every time we move, we have a child. So (laughs) we got to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, But uh, I grew up in a very loving home and a home where uh, we were taught, like I said before, right from wrong. And and growing up in the church, like many of you, um, I I knew the church answers. I knew the Bible verses. I went to VBS. Um, I did Sunday school. I did church three three days a week, you know, twice on Sunday, all those things. I was about five years old is when I really, five or six years old, I really, um, you know, came to a place where I understood that I needed repentance and faith for myself. Mm-hmm. And my father was a big guy, you know, like Keith Athlete. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, he played football at University of Maryland. And my dad would, every, every other night or so, he had this big teddy bear. And some of you have heard this story, but he would get behind the teddy bear and say, Benjamin, you want to fight the teddy bear? I'm like, yeah, daddy, I want to fight the teddy bear. So he'd get behind the teddy bear and he would box me with the teddy bear. <laughs> So I'm like five, six years old, and he's hitting me upside the head. The dude's 6'2", 250, you know, hitting a little six-year-old. Maybe he wanted to keep playing football. I don't know what his deal was. But we would do this before we go to bed, and, um, and then sometimes when I would lose, I would sit in the bed, and I would yell, Daddy, you bring that teddy bear back here. I'm not going to bed until I beat that teddy bear. And he's like, this dude has a serious, serious problem. I was competitive even back then. So one night I lost, and they brought the teddy bear back out, and he allowed me to win. Um, And right there at about six years old, my father asked me, Benjamin, um, I had asked a lot about death, and I was always interested in what happened to people when they they left this earth. He said, you know what will happen to you if you you died? And again, I was born in church. I knew all the right answers. Uh, My grandmother was a praying grandmother, all those things. But but I I told him no, and he shared with me John 3.16 which, um, you know, all of you know, but it's still my favorite verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And right there at about six years old, I prayed with my father to receive the Lord as my, as my savior. And so over time, yeah. over time, I've obviously um, matured. I mean, that was the first time I really understood what was going on. Um, but over time, I've matured, obviously, and I've had um, ebbs and flows, and I've had issues, and I've had failures and things like that, and I've grown in grace and understanding. Um, but that was the first time. When it relates to this topic, though, um, I grew up in, I was in multiple church settings. And looking back on it, I think that's one of the things that God allowed me to do was be in an all-white church and understand how to navigate that and being an all-black church and understand how to navigate that and be in mixed situations. Um, I was a kid who um, many would say was, was too white for some of the black kids and too black for some of the white kids. I went to a predominantly white school. Uh, my mother drove a school bus uh, so that we could have somewhat of a discount to go to this school. And I would, we would go to this private school, but I lived in an all-black neighborhood. So all my friends in my neighborhood were black. All my friends at school were white. I would come home, and I may have different holidays than the kids in my neighborhood, so I'd go play football with them. Um, and some days I'd be off, and they'd be in school, and they'd wonder, what you doing at that white school? What are you learning? And why do you talk like that? <laughs> you know, why don't you talk like us? And so as, 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 as a black person, you learn automatically 
kind of a dual citizenship. Um, for me, seeing my father navigate uh, the black church and the white church, I learned that at a black church, sometimes he preached differently. He preached with the same substance, but he delivered it in a different way. Um, when he'd be at a white church, he preached differently. He wasn't running around and sweating when he was at the white church. <laughs> he wasn't getting any feedback when he was at the white church. <laughs> he had to just go on his own. The substance was the same. I feel his pain, brother. I feel his pain. <laughs> <laughs> the substance was the same, but the style was different. And so for me, for me growing up, I think that that was um, one thing that was difficult for me. Um, but it's something that most black people, if you talk to them, experience in some kind of way. Understanding that for us, race is something that is ever present. We see it a lot. We see it all the time. When we walk into this church, we see, we see white. Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we see it when we go to Whole Foods. We see people, we, we're always very aware of race, whereas many of my white friends aren't aware of it. Like you said before, it just doesn't register. Right. Um, you're in a very homogeneous situation and it just doesn't register. It shouldn't register. Everybody looks like you. What's very interesting though, is um, <clears throat> I've had an opportunity to go on some mission trips to uh, some countries that were all black, like, like a Jamaica, something like that. And we always, it's always fun when you got a couple of white folks on your mission team. <laughs> <laughs> It's just so fun. It's like, I can't wait to see you here. <laughs> so we get to Jamaica, and then you see the kids, hey, whitey, hey, whitey. And, and they're, they're like, huh, is that kid calling me whitey? Like, yeah. <laughs> they're not talking to me. They're talking to you. <laughs> and it's always funny to see how they say, oh, my goodness, suddenly I'm aware of race. And I say, uh-huh, you are. Now you understand a little bit of how we feel on an everyday basis. Right. Um, and so for me growing up, again, um, I had an opportunity to, to, to be in, in both realms. Um, and I think it's benefited me uh, because I'm able to understand uh, and have a little bit of patience with you white people. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're tilting the conversation. There you go. Way. Yeah, that's, that's pretty tilted, Ben. Uh, <laughs> I'm not offended. That's okay. Uh, all right. Well, at some point, and we're going to come back to the church context, uh, at some point you get the idea, and not actually to write a book, but to write a blog post that ended up turning into a book, and we've been mentioning this for a while, the book's called Under Our Skin. Uh, subtitle is Getting Real About Race and Getting Free from the Fears and Frustrations that Divide Us. Again, I'm all the guys, all the pastors and elders have, have read this book, and, and every one of them has come back affected by it, uh, grateful for it, and recommending it to others. So if you've not read this book, it, it, we've got some available in the, in the uh, bookstore. Please get a copy. It, it's just a must-read. But help us um, kind of go into the, the writing of this book with us for a minute. Um, why, why the title, Under Our Skin? Well, the funny thing about Under Our Skin is uh, it wasn't even my idea. <laughs> um, when you write a book, and unbeknownst to me, it's my first book, um, you, you write a book and you get a publisher and they help you, you know, with, with, with publishing the book and everything, and, and you write it, and they give you their input and things like that. And I wanted to name the book Skin Problem because my, because my blog post, my Facebook post, talked about it being a sin problem and not necessarily a skin problem. 
And so I, I had this great idea, like when I write this book, it's going to say, say skin problem and the S and the I and the N are going to be different than the K. Nice. So that you can kind of see this dual meaning with skin problem. And then they, they looked at me and said, well, everybody we polled thought it was about measles or mumps or something. <laughs> So we need to change that title. I said, okay, okay, I'll listen to you change the title. So they sent me a few different titles, and Under Our Skin was one that kind of popped out to uh, me and Kirsten because of kind of the dual meaning. Uh, this book will get under your skin. It will make you uncomfortable. That's the point. Um, a lot of times we don't move and we don't change our behaviors until we are forced to because we're in an uncomfortable situation. When we talk about football and training camp, coaches make it so uncomfortable so that when the game comes, you're able to handle that tough situation. But you will never get any progress if you didn't go through such a hard time. And so it gets under your skin because it's going to challenge some of your ideas. It's going to make you feel happy and sad and offended all at the same time, and that's good. Um, the other side of the meaning under our skin is obviously because, as we've alluded to, our skin uh, makes up a very pro small percentage of who we are. We all know about melanin. We all understand that by DNA, I could actually be closer to Keith DNA-wise than someone who was black. Mm. It's been proven. So under our skin, we are human and the same. And so it points to the fact that our humanity is the same, also for the, in a church setting, that our spirituality is the same and that we are united in him. Mm. Under our skin, God sees us the same. He loves our differences. He created us differently. He gave us different skin colors. He gave us different traditions and cultures. Um, but he also understands that we're united through his son in him. So we are part, we are adopted into his family. And how dare one brother or sister be better than another simply because of how God made them. That's the, 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 the sad thing about racism um, is that you are simply putting your physical characteristics or your traditions, how different they may be, above someone else's just because they're yours. Mm -hmm. And so back when um, this book kind of originated from a Facebook post, uh, many of you remember Ferguson, Missouri, and you remember um, the unrest after uh, the grand jury decided uh, not to indict um, Officer Wilson in the killing of Michael Brown. And that was after a summer, or actually two years, of a lot of racially charged police citizen altercations. You know, you had Freddie Gray in New York, you had Trayvon Martin, um, you had these different things, Tamir Rice in Cleveland. Uh, you had a lot going on. Yeah. And after that Ferguson decision, it was a Monday night football game. We were playing the Baltimore Ravens, of course, um, <laughs> which is a team I'm going to if you don't know. There you go. Um, and we ended up losing the game, and that's when I found out about the decision. And I think there was so much leading up to this decision. Everybody was wanting to know what the grand jury was going to decide. And, 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 and the football team, you're no different. We talk about those things as well. And I wanted to know, when I found out, um, I was angry. I was upset. I mean, I had so many emotions. And when you play on a Monday night football game, you only have, you have Tuesday off and you're back on Wednesday. So Tuesday's always our day off. This Tuesday, I'm with the kids. You know, they take a nap. I'm like, I got to write something. I got to get this out. So I start writing on my, you know, iPhone notes app of all things. Um, I erase it. That's not what I want to say. And eventually, I just felt the urge to just write what I feel. And that's a scary thing. And that's one of the things that we struggle when it comes to race is you're scared to say what you feel because you're scared, scared someone may label you. Yeah. Someone may call you a bigot. Somebody may call you a racist. Someone may say you don't understand. You're not right for thinking that. 
um, part of our barriers, part of the fears and frustrations I think that we all have when it comes to this issue is we're scared to be honest about how we feel because of what someone will say against us. Now, some of us are racist, and we need to repent from that. But some of us are curious. Some of us just want to know. We're ignorant. We don't know. It's not our experience. So we're ignorant to certain things. Um, I decided to write my feelings, Pastor Keith, and it's always scary to push send when you say something so raw. But I think it resonated with a lot of people. So the, the Facebook post and the book kind of follows the same um, path of being angry, about being um, introspective, about being hopeless, because these things keep on happening over and over again. And as a black person in America, you turn TV on, and when you see something like that happen, you don't have a, 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 you really don't have much of a doubt that it's true that this cop or whoever did something wrong to this person. You turn it on assuming it's, it's, probably, it's probably what they did. We've known this country to give us uh, syphilis just to see how humans respond to it. That's been proven. We've known this country to uh, not give people jobs. We've known this, this country to enslave people. We've known this country to do a lot of different things. And so when things happen, we in, enter into it with a certain lens of saying, you know, what? <laughs> here we go again, and it makes us angry. Um, and, and, and so when I, when I wrote the post and sent it out, the, the response was, was really tremendous, I think, because no matter if you were black, white, um, or anywhere on the spectrum, I think people really identify with some of the things that I said, and some people didn't identify with any of it. I mean, I had a guy, in the end of the post, I say, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives us hope. The gospel is what unifies us. The gospel is what we point to to say, you know what, we have these divisions in humanity, um, but Christ's blood is what covers over that, and he is our hope for reconciliation. Not the government, not conversations like this, not laws. They're all, we need equal laws and all those sorts of things. But as a believer, we understand that we're simply ambassadors here and that when we get to heaven, it's not, none of this is going to matter. Right. So we're charged with showing people what it's like when believers of different ethnicities come together. So I said the gospel gives us hope. And what's funny is I got a response from a guy who said he was an atheist. He's like, you know, I... I'm not down with all that Jesus stuff, but you're making me think. You got a good, you got a good case. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, so, so the charge is, you know, as believers, you know, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it's, it's our answer. But like you said, there is a humanity to it that we have to address. Yeah. You know, interesting. All right. So we, we know Ben's been raised to know Christ. He walks with him, has been affected by Christ. And when you look at what Ben writes about and, and the way you felt about it, right, there's a lot of strong words here that are internal, emotional, right? So on the cover, you know, we've got words like fears and frustrations, right? Those are strong motivators or they affect us. Your chapter titles are really just the responses to how you felt about the situation. So the first chapter is angry, mm -hmm. introspective. It's the next chapter. Then embarrassed, then frustrated, fearful and confused, sad and sympathetic. These are the, the titles of the chapters. Offended, hopeless, and then it turns the corner in the end, hopeful, encouraged, and empowered. All right, those are strong words. And Ben, help us with this. Uh, you, when, when you, when you read Ben's book, you know, it's an ex, ex, I've told him this a number of times, extremely well-written book. But it's obvious you didn't start thinking about this issue a couple of weeks before you wrote it. Yeah. This has been a life 
of living in this category and thinking about it and considering it. And so one of the things that was so helpful, I think, for me or anybody reading the book is getting to meet your family mm -hmm. and their experiences and what has shaped the way they feel about life and what's informed you about how you look at life, what, you, what you've been taught to look for because their life was, was a certain way in different places. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you tell us some stories for a few moments about just your family, their background. You mentioned both your grandfathers. Uh, you mentioned your dad in the book quite a bit. And, you know, to give you a perspective, this, this catches my attention. When you say in the book, and you, and you give us a time frame here that's sobering, that you, as a, as a black man, missed slavery by five generations? Yeah. Pretty much five, five generations. I mean, we think about it. You know, you got to. You know, if we're looking at a generation by, you know, a father, a grandfather, a great, mm -hmm. a great, a great. You know, the the fifth down the line was born in 1860. That's before emancipation. Yep. And so a lot of times, and the reason why why I I say that is because a lot of times I hear, you know, slavery was so long ago. Right. Why don't y'all just let it go? Be honest. Y'all say that, don't you? I know you do. <laughs> it's okay. We're in church. You can say it. That's all right. I, I ain't mad at you. It was so long ago, these folks need to just let it go. And they didn't experience it. People today didn't, and that's true. I, I was never in chains. Um, but there are things in your life, in your family history, that you identify with. Um, there is an experienced history that you have through your own personal experience, and then there is a collective history that you as, as a family have and also as a, an ethnicity or a group, a social group have. Um, and so when I sit with my grandfather who was born in 1920 and he tells me about his grandfather, you know, who was born in 1860, or when I sit there with my father uh, who was born in 56 and he tells me stories. Um, when my grandfather tells me about the time when he, he my grandfather, Pop Pop, he was a hard-headed little kid. I mean, he was born in, he lived in a place called Culpeper, Virginia, which is a small town outside of Washington, D.C. So my mom's side is all from the District of Columbia. My dad's side is from Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, Pop Pop had to be sent to Washington because if he stayed in Culpeper, he was probably going to be lynched. He was that bad. <laughs> this dude, <clears throat> this dude jumped in the all whites, in the whites only pool because <laughs> he wanted to swim. That's what he says. He wanted to swim, so he jumped in the all whites pool, the whites only pool. Come to find out, his dad finds out. They come contact his dad. His dad had to pay for the whole pool to be drained and water to get put back in. Now, funny story, but when I think about it, I'm like, wow. Yeah. So these are experiences that he's had. I'm sitting here talking with him, living with, I, lo I love Pop Pop. Pop Pop passed away um, a few years ago. He was 94. And so um, these stories get passed down, and they, like you said, affect how, how I see the world. Wow, that, that's how it used to be. So on one hand, I'm like, man, I'm so glad it's not like that. On the other hand, there is an infinite amount of sympathy and sadness and anger when things happen that take me back to his stories. Right. My grandfather, uh, my dad's dad, uh, worked for the military in Norfolk, Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia has uh, the largest naval base in the world. It used to be, I think it still is. So he used to work on the ships, unloading the ships, loading the ships, things like that. Uh, during the World War, the Nazi soldiers would be captured. They were held in Norfolk, Virginia. So my grandfather would be working on these ships, um, and if he had used the bathroom, he had to go clean across the other side of the base. But the enemy, 
the Nazis who were captured and brought over, they could use the same bathroom that the servicemen for the United States used because they were white. Right. Here, we, here he is serving his country, fighting against evil, and he's not allowed to use the same bathroom that the folks captured who would have killed these other soldiers. If they saw him <laughs> on a battlefield, uh, he can't use their bathroom. So he tells us stories like this. And, and, and you know, different things like that obviously shape um, how you view race. And so, you know, every, I don't want to say I speak for every black person. I'm not the spokesman. I got on a black suit. That don't mean I'm the black spokesman. <laughs> but I will say <clears throat> that there is a certain commonality there. And, and many um, blacks have similar stories from their families. And that shapes how they view um, life right now today. You, you tell a story in, uh, about growing up in a setting where you were a black young guy amongst a white setting, and there came a day where your friends all of a sudden pointed out to you that you, you weren't like them. Yeah, like I didn't know, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of didn't know. <clears throat> I, I think every black person, uh, you ain't got to raise your hand in here, but every black person kind of has that day when they realize that they're black. <laughs> And they're, and they're different. They just have that, 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 that kind of come to Jesus moment where it's like, oh, wow, I am. And then it's like, what does this mean? So, so we always talk about children and how children play together. They get along. They don't care about, you know, color and race and the things that adults do. And that's true. And then there's always this time, this time frame for some kids is younger, for some kids is older. And, and, and as black parents, you, you worry about that for your children. You worry how that transition is going to take place. You want it to happen in the right setting. You don't want it to happen in the, in the middle of a school, in a situation where you can't comfort them um, or, or, or a place that you can't control. But you know it's going to happen to them because it happened to you. Right. And so I was, I was um, you know, in elementary school, and I was, like we talked about, an athlete, of course. Uh, I would have got picked first in the basketball. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part of the reason was because I, I was, like, the only you. black kid in the school. I would have so picked you. They would have picked me first anyway, just assumed that I could play basketball. <laughs> Y'all know y'all assume that too, don't you? <laughs> <coughs> so I was, I was uh, in elementary school, and, um, you know, there was me and another guy who were a, a white kid. We were really good friends, and, and I was, you know, kind of athletic. He was as well. And there was this one girl that everybody just thought was so cute. You know, she, she had kind of brownish blonde hair. <clears throat> she had little freckles. Um, you know, she was a soccer player. Uh, so and everybody just loved to, to, to be around her. We all would talk about, man, you know, maybe she'll pick us, one of us. <laughs> so on Valentine's Day, we would buy, you know, the school would offer to, we could buy chocolates to give to different people, kind of a fundraiser type thing. And so we'd all buy her chocolates and stuff like that. And I remember sitting at lunch one time. It was me, um, <clears throat> my friend Alan, uh, another guy named Yuki. He was, he was Japanese. And we were all randomly talking about this girl in passing. And, uh, and one of them said... To me, Benjamin, and I'll call her Katie. That's what I call her in the book. I changed her name. So when Pastor Keith asked me about this story, I was like, who the heck is Katie? <laughs> because I changed the names. And I'm like, Katie, who is Katie? <laughs> um, so Katie, um, and I said, you know, Katie would really love you if you were white. And I was in elementary school. So I was, I was probably about eight years old or so. And, you know, of course, you know you're different, I mean, than most people. But it does, really doesn't matter. But at that point, it was kind of like I got hot, and it was, okay, me being different means something. Like, I, people aren't going to like me because of this. Like, it, it, it matters. Okay, I, I don't have a chance with this girl 
that everybody likes because I'm, I'm not like them. Um, and so th- the kid who said it must have picked that up somewhere. Right. Maybe at home and uh, maybe from an older brother or a sibling or, or a parent or something like that. Um, but that was, I always point to that time being the first time I really felt like, okay, I'm black and it means something. It means that I'm going to have to do above and beyond. Something my grandfather always told me was um, there's a ceiling. He always felt there was a ceiling for blacks. Like you could be as educated uh, as you want to be. You can, you can be as nice. You can, you can uh, you know, put the best foot forward. You can have all the degrees you want, but there's going to be this ceiling. Um, uh, my wife's grandfather always said, you don't have to be as good as, you got to be better than. And that's kind of what's uh, taught to us from a very young age, is that, you know, you're going into this world. Um, it is what it is. Um, this is a country that is majority white. doesn't mean all white people are bad, but what it does mean is that you're going to have to work a little bit harder in order to attain some of the same things. Um, and that was really the first time. And I remember going home and kind of feeling uh, belittled, and, and feeling rather sad about the situation. Now, again, that didn't come from her. <clears throat> it came from someone else, right. from a friend of mine. And I think that's what hurt the most. Yeah. You said something, you and I were talking, um, <laughs> you know, because it feels so distant. And even when you say you know, there's a ceiling. Yeah. And so you're raised with the idea that, you know, your own merit, your own ability to earn and do right is, is going to be treated differently than somebody else's. And so you're raised in that. All right. So from living in a white world, we're raised with, with ideas that, well, there were laws that changed all that. And these laws came into place and, you know, come on, Ben, everybody's got the same chance now. This is an equal country. Um, but interesting. And, and you shared this with me a little bit. The civil war, which seems like so long ago, but when you, until you say five generations, uh, it changed a legal dimension, but it didn't change attitudes. Yeah. And so up until you mentioned to me the, the civil rights movement in the 60s, you, you had a lot of stagnancy of how much life for a black person changed from slavery. Now, the law is different, but the attitudes are not different. Yeah. And, and I'll give you one example from a white perspective, but, but I want you to talk a little bit about how that's affected you, your family, and your view of life. Uh, when, when we were growing up, we, as a family, we, we ate at the same restaurant once a week. And every week we would go there, and we'd, you know, I'm a little boy, and uh, there, was, there was a black man who waited on us. And he's a sweet man. He was very endearing. He just, he, he made a point. He, he knew, knew us by name. And, you know, so we always felt really special that he was hanging with us. My dad referred to him as a colored man. Mm-hmm. And he was, how can I say, overdoting. He was overpolite. He was overrespectful. And you know, at a young age, growing up as a white person, I'm, I'm not learning. I don't know what society is all about. I'm just, I'm just doing dinner. But coming to find out later and looking, when you told and it's mentioned in your book, your dad was taught by his father that you know when you encounter a white woman, you, you don't lift your eyes to her. And to think you have been taught to relate to human beings differently. You don't get to relate to them the way somebody else does. And that man who waited on us, he did not relate to us the way we relate to each other. And he was taught that. And that's 1970, probably. So help us understand uh, we, as you know, in the white world, we get the idea that laws have changed. There's laws now that everybody's equal in the law. 
but that's not how it feels, is it? It goes back to your humanity piece. It's, you know, laws are changed, but humans enact laws. And, you know, when we talk about uh, slavery and we talk about the 1860s, obviously emancipation came for a period of time. There were, there were black congressmen, governors. I mean, the blacks were allowed to be a part of the legislative process. Soon after that, um, there came a time of neo-slavery that was perhaps worse than slavery because at this point, nobody owned these people. So if you're a slave and I want to do something to you and I do something to you, I didn't mess with this man's property. That's a problem. If nobody owns you and you're emancipated, I can do whatever I want to do to you. I can send you to free labor camps in Alabama in the iron mills where there's mass graves that are being uncovered right now. I can lynch you. I can do whatever I want to do to you because you're not owned by anybody. So for a time, uh, a long time, it was in, in many ways worse. And honestly, when we talk about um, rights coming in the 60s, effectively, blacks were slaves in this country, or at least less than in this country, until the 60s. And as we mentioned, that wasn't that long ago. Right. And so the idea that you know, slavery ended and autom automatically everybody's okay, everybody is, uh, is equal, that's just not reality. And so, as you mentioned about, you know, looking at a white woman or certain things that you learn in black culture, um, that things that are passed down that we just do without even, without even knowing. Right. Um, I remember my dad telling me uh, <laughs> when, it, when his father told him that, and my dad was like, no, I'm, I'm doing whatever I want to. My, dad, my grandfather was like, boy, you're trying to live, ain't you? <laughs> and that's kind of the idea. You want to survive. And um, although m much of that has changed now, obviously, um, but that still resonates with us as, as, as black parents. When we talk about our children, we teach our children. We want our children to come home. Um, you respect the police officer. You respect people outside, black and white. But mainly, there's the idea of when it comes to authority, especially white authority, you respect in a way that white kids don't have to. There are some things that white kids can get away with that black kids can't. Um, and that's the reality, and that's something that, as, as a black parent, you think about for your children. Not every black parent thinks that. I'm not saying that, but I'll speak for myself. Raising young black boys who are very cute now. Y'all see them. They're cute. <laughs> very cute little boys. And at some point, if they grow up to be over six feet, which they probably will, you know, Judah already kind of swole, but they grow up and get a little, grow up and get a little big, they may be considered a threat, even though they are... Um, well-intentioned, educated young men simply because of how they look. And there's a transition that happens that we're aware of as parents when they get to a stage where, you know, they were the cute little boy, and now it's like, okay, you, you need to watch, son. You need to watch. I remember my dad telling me, <laughs> do exactly what the man says, even if he's wrong, I'll come get you. Um, be obedient. Watch yourself in public. Don't act a certain way. And that's something that a lot of people in this room, I think, can relate to. You mentioned in, personally, you guys have experienced this. I think I've heard Kirsten mention uh, walking into a store and yes. being treated one way because of her skin color. and then Right being, here in Metro. Then being treated differently Metro. because they discovered that she maybe has some means. You know, yes. if, if she could discover you're married to a professional athlete, that, then that changes that. You tell a story about the, your first child being born and... Yeah. Driving to the hospital. Driving to the hospital early in the morning in Boston, Massachusetts. It's cold. It's January. Uh, it really was a cold winter day then. <laughs> and uh, we're driving at 3 a.m. in the morning to, to have our first daughter, Grace. So we're coming onto the interstate. And I intentionally, you know, we all have that idea 
when uh, you have your first child that the police officer is going to come beside you and escort you down the interstate. <laughs> Everybody's going to part like the Red Sea, and you're going to go straight to the delivery room and just pop the baby out, you know. Thank you, officer, for getting us here. Yeah, that's right. That's not what happened in our case. We pull onto 90 Street, 93, the interstate, and I intentionally was driving under the speed limit because I had a nice car, tinted windows, I had rims, you know, black people got rims. <laughs> yeah, y'all can laugh, y'all can laugh, it's okay. <laughs> and police officer pulled me over and it was more of an interrogation than, than a help. And he was, he was very rude, he asked where we were going, I said, my wife is pregnant, we're going to the hospital. He shines the strobe light in her face, shines it on her, on her belly and says, well, get there then. And that was it. Now, I don't know if he had a bad day, but for me, having that experience as a black man, um, I definitely saw it as his rudeness was connected to how I looked. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that's just one, one instance there, but, but uh, these sorts of things are real. And I think one of the biggest things is, even if our experiences are different, um, for me, for someone to acknowledge that your experience is real and not deny it, works wonders, yeah. especially when we talk about the church. When we talk about this body, and we all come from different experiences, physical experience. You may have never had that experience with a police officer. You, maybe you have. But you hear these things, you hear these stories that are very, very real to a part of the body, very, very real to many uh, black people. And for you to say that it's not true, you're making this up, that's what really hurts. Because even if you don't experience, if you have the conversation and say, hey, it hasn't happened to me, but you know what? I believe it may have happened to you. That is the first step in bridging the gap. Yep. And, and that's, a, that's a bigger issue in, in, in terms of diversity, whether, you're, whether it's male-female diversity, yes. racial diversity. Yeah, you're right. We don't share the same experience, but we're called together to love people who have been damaged by a fallen world differently than I've been damaged. Yeah. And, you know, if I read my Bible a little bit, I'm not shocked by that. I know that to be true. And so I need to learn to make room for it, which is very helpful to hear. You had said something, that, you know, that whole issue of, of how this affects you. You and I were just having a conversation in the last year. I think your wife was supposed to be or just recently was supposed to travel to Atlanta. Mm -hmm. and, and you would just share with me some concern about her driving. It was, she was going to be without you. And I think the kids were going to be with her, and she was going to visit some relatives, and she had to drive through parts of the South. Yeah, Louisiana's cool, but Mississippi and Alabama? No. So, I, so, I mean, this isn't a movie from the 60s, right? This is a man who's sitting in our church who that is what he thinks about when his wife talks about driving to Atlanta. All right, dude, I don't think about that when my wife's driving somewhere. Now, I know yeah. she's going to get lost and call me, but I'm worried about that. <laughs> but I'm not thinking about whether she's going to get pulled over or whether yeah. she's going to be harassed. All right, so yeah. that's in your mind. It's in your mind. It's something that... that um it factors into decisions, it does. I remember my father telling me he was driving from South Carolina to Florida uh, to speak, to preach um, at a Fellowship of Christian Athletes event. Um, he drives throughout the South uh, you know, quite frequently and um, he never speeds. I mean, when I say never speeds, if you've ridden with my dad, you know that movie like Driving Miss Daisy? Since we're, <laughs> since we're on this topic, that movie Driving Miss Daisy, yeah. and when the guy drives so slow, he's dri literally driving Miss Daisy. Like he is five, miles per hour under the speed limit at all times, you're sitting there with him like, oh my gosh, I know you're a pastor, but can you break one law, please? <laughs> you know, and he tells, he tells me about getting pulled over, um, 
you know, throughout the South and, and how there is still a, an awareness um, about the time of night that you're driving, where you're driving. Um, I'm not saying by no means that it's, it's the same thing that we see on, you know, Mississippi Burning or the different movies, things like that. Um, but you, it still factors into your decision making when you're going through certain rural parts. Yeah. All right. Well, you let me let me jump into the, the anger questions. Um, you responded to Ferguson observing that situation, a news item, and you said, "I'm angry. Yeah. I'm angry about that event." Um, all right. Help us. And I think I mean very helpful to hear your experience, your family's experience, and, and what's in your mind as you just do life and you watch these things happen. And you're bringing stuff to it that most of us as white people are not bringing to that. That news item occurs. We're not bringing what you're bringing. Mm-hmm. All right, so you're, you're angry. All right, help us understand. I think we understand the history of the anger. Mm-hmm. But anger is sitting inside of you. Mm-hmm. Right? So you are in a conversation and we become aware that you're angry, right? So I'm a white guy sitting in a room with you and I'm aware that Ben's, Ben's a little angry. You start backing up? Yeah, exactly. Only because of your size, not your color. Um, um, Good one. What do we do? Because I, I mentioned, you and I talked yesterday. I mentioned, you know, if, if any of us walk into a room and we're red hot angry, anger is a hard emotion for other people to manage, right? Because you, you seem like a little out of control. A dad walks in at the end of the day, slams the door, huffs and puffs. Everybody stops what they're doing and looks and tries to figure out, what do I need to do? run, cooperate, help, you know. All right, so you're angry, and I'm a white person. Yeah. What, what, what are you angry at, and how do, I, how do I respond to that anger? You're angry at everybody who's white? You're angry at the issue? You're angry at the history? Do, 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 should I feel responsible? Yeah. Did somehow my ancestry make me feel like I'm, I'm, I should be able to fix that, or I should try and fix it then? What, what do I do? Yeah. All right, so you're angry. How do we respond? The problem with the anger um, and your response is that if you feel like um, I'm angry at you, you immediately get defensive. Right. You, you take a defensive posture. So then your mind goes to, hold on, why is he angry at me? Right. I don't even know you, and I've been nothing but nice to you. My family didn't even own slaves. We were poor. We just migrated here a couple years ago. You know, as a matter of fact, my ancestors were so poor, they worked for other people alongside the slaves. So why are you mad at me? Because I'm white. It keeps going on and on right, and on. Right. Um, anger uh, is an emotion that there's nothing wrong with anger, but it's the next step that gets us in trouble. So as a black man, if I'm angry because of past injustices and I see things happening over and over again that remind me of those things that have happened to me as well as others, and I go out and I destruct property or do different things, that's a problem. If I'm black and I'm angry and I come into an all-white setting and I look at every white person as they're out to get me and they hate me, that's a problem as well. On the other side of the equation, if you see a black person that's angry um, and you get defensive and those sorts of things, that's a problem because you shut down, no relationship can happen there. If, however, I come to you and you know I'm angry and we have a relationship, And you're able to say to me, Benjamin, why are you angry? I want to listen. Mm -hmm. That absolves anger. That quiets anger. That allows me to communicate with you and allows you to understand where I'm coming from. But that only happens with intentional relationships. And so if there are no intentional relationships, 
you turn on the news, you turn on CNN and Fox and MSNBC, all the ones I love. I'm a news junkie. All the ones <laughs> I love to watch. And you see this black anger, and you have no intentional relationships with anybody that looks like the people on TV that are angry. You have nowhere to go with that except to other people who don't know anybody else who's angry as well. Right. So you see a single story about people, and anytime we see a single story about a group of people, and we put on them the whatever it is that being portrayed in the news, you think all black people are angry. And so you see a black person, you automatically get defensive because you're like, I know they probably don't like me because I'm white. And you just think that they're always angry. So, but if you have intentional relationships like we have with some people in this room, they're able to come to me and without me being offended, say, what? it seems like black people are angry about this event that has happened. What's your take on it? And I can honestly say, well, we are angry. They are angry because of X, Y, and, D, and Z. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with you. Maybe it does. But this is why we have this anger. And so, so I think that, that life is about relationships. Um, you can't understand different things about people if you don't intentionally put yourself around people who are not like you. Now, that, is, that doesn't mean that you, you know, it's all about holding hands, singing kumbaya, those sorts of things. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But if you've never gone out to dinner with a couple that isn't culturally like you, there's no way you can really understand them at all. Sometimes it takes us getting out of our comfort zone. Sometimes it takes us being intentional to say, you know what? I don't know any black people. This is okay. I'm giving you permission to do this. I don't know any black people, but I want to understand a little bit about y'all. Can we go to dinner? You may sit there in silence for the first 30 minutes. <laughs> but the point is, there's an effort there to bridge the gap. There's an effort there to have some sort of relationship. Um, and that's where things grow. Things grow from that place. But, but honestly, you know, in order to have that, you got to check your own heart. You know, there has to be an openness of heart to maybe hear some things that you don't understand and that, quite frankly, you may not even agree with. Yep. One of the things, I'm going to read something from your book here just for a second. One of the things that uh, I have a concern about for a number of reasons, and, and race would be one of them, and, and I'm a news junkie too because I, I like to see what's happening to humanity. But, you know, you guys know I will sideswipe Fox News often uh, here because this audience is primarily white and you don't watch other stuff. Um, <laughs> but I sideswipe it for this reason. Fox News teaches you how to look at things. So when you sit and listen to their broadcast, they bring up a news item and then they talk about X, Y, and Z. And they ignore something. There are certain priorities. And if you watch this thing over and over and over again, you're taught to see certain priorities about that kind of an issue. So the race issue comes up, and it's quite often a conversation that's got a lot to do with issues like, well, what about every person taking responsibility for themselves? What about that? What about the fact that, okay, that young man was shot, but he was told by a law enforcement officer to not do X, Y, or Z. What about just responding to authority? And all the guests come on, and they all, you know, they all say the same thing about don't, that. Don't forget black-on-black -black crime in there. Yeah, then, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll let you too. throw that in. All right, so here's what you say in your book. You say, here's what's, what's really bad about these shows. They reduce every issue or event to a debate. And this approach spills out of the TV studios and into our lives. We become all about, quote, taking a side and arguing it fiercely. 
We then look for facts to fit our assumptions, and we learn to distrust everything that doesn't fit our uh, version of reality. Now, if you really want an excellent example on what this looks like, watch Sean Hannity. I've never seen a more rude individual in my life. Now, I happen to agree with a lot of things he says, but he's obnoxious. And so you watch this sort of an issue, and you, you highlight this in your book. You give an example of watching a CNN program where Anderson Cooper, uh, this is not Fox, but Anderson Cooper's got the mothers of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown and a couple of other young men who have been killed, and he's having a conversation with basically mothers who have lost their sons. And the ticker tape across the bottom of the screen of people who are responding and texting is calling them to task about stuff that sounds like white people ideas. Like, well, what about this? You're not arguing for this. Well, what about that? Well, you know, so what we want to do is we want to force our debate. We want to bring our issues. All right. So I'm, you know, white, we're raised with certain values that are very, very important. And so affirmative action doesn't always sit right with white people because it seems like it's, it's, we want to we be equal here, but we're going to give advantage now to some people at the expense of somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to create a tax policy that's going to take from people mm -hmm. in a way that they're not volunteering, and it's going to give it to people that look like they're abusing this. Mm -hmm. All right, so those values create white anger. All right, so now you got white people are angry and black people are angry, and we're all trying to have a conversation, mm -hmm. and unfortunately we're being taught by the media what that's supposed to look like. And by the way, it doesn't look anything like Colossians chapter three, does it? Yeah. Right? I mean, hey, break out your Colossians three verse and sit down and watch Sean Hannity and tell me whether you're watching something that models humility and compassion and forgiveness. You're just not. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't watch that. I'm just saying be informed when you do because he's training you. And then there's other sides of the equation that I think maybe black individuals get trained to be very animated about certain things, right? Yeah. So help yeah. us. We get yeah. in the same room together. We've been yeah. trained to look at life differently. Yeah. Well, again, uh, you know, it's about, <clears throat> sometimes it's about doing your own research. Um, I watch these same shows. <clears throat> and Hannity, boy. Um, yeah. I don't have anything nice. Well, no, I like Hannity. I watch him. And I agree with much of what he says, but you're right. It's about being rude. It's about his delivery. Um, but we are, we are taught to... to see things with a certain lens, and media plays to whatever lens their audience is. Um, that show with, with, with the women and their sons, there is a certain humanity, a certain compassion that needs to be over all of us. Yeah. So while it may be right, it's kind of the both and. Yep. Well, it may be right that these young men should have listened to the police officer at that certain time, even though we don't know all the facts. It's also a tragedy that these young men lost their lives and that a mother has to bury their child. Yep. Yep. We can have that compassion and still, at the right time, address the other issue. Yep. And also the assumption is that in a white home and a black home, two totally different things are being taught when it comes to certain laws, when it comes to, to these things. And that may not be true. Um, you may teach your child to obey the police officer. I'm being taught the same thing. Now, the, the, the reason behind it may be a little bit different, but they're still being taught in, in both households. So. When we come to a setting where we turn the TV on and we see something, we all have to realize that we're seeing things through our own specific lenses. And we all have our own biases. And it's amazing how two people can see the exact same thing on TV 
and come up with totally different reasons for it and be more concerned about winning the debate than really about winning souls. You know, you're more concerned about winning um, in an argument and someone is dead and you don't have any compassion for what's going on. Right. Um, specifically as believers, this should never be. Um, and again, I think it points back to having these, these relationships where we can talk about these sorts of things. Yep, yep. All right, well, let me, because I know we're running out of time. How surprising. Oh, yeah. Um, Your clock isn't even going. No, it, it's you, the other one there is moving. Plus, the you gave Keith no countdown? <laughs> no, I'm so sorry actually, for Actually, you you're guys. doing most of the talking, so they actually gave you no <laughs> countdown, okay? Uh, they know not to do that to me. Um, all right, so let, let's move us into the church for a minute and, and talk. Um, so we come into this setting, and you guys, your family finds itself in a setting that that you sound like you've got experience navigating, right? You've been in a, in a setting that's predominantly white, been in a setting that's predominantly black. Um, right, for, for many of us here, we would not have that experience. And so our hope biblically and our hope just relationally is that we're, we're connecting and building fellowship with one another that doesn't in any way throw up walls because of skin color, ethnic background, et cetera. Mm. Um, but when you come in, you've got a different set of noise playing in the back of your head. Yeah. Help us understand that. Help us, what, what do we do to not be cheesy in the way in which we yeah. <laughs> deal with that issue? We just love you, black people. Come on in. <laughs> All you Spanish people, uh, we love you. Did you I see love it? burritos. Did you? <laughs> love them. I mean, Eric was funky this morning. Did you hear how funky Eric was this morning? He was. I thought it was because of, I mean, we, we, us black people talked about it. All we're right. like, oh, See? snap. I'm you know, maybe you. it's because we got Diversity Sunday going on here. Yeah. We, yeah. You know, we jamming or something. He, he was happy. You know, or when, I, when, we come, when we come to the church, clearly, and we were talking about this yesterday, um, there is a certain, uh, obviously, I'm an athlete that adds something else to it. So I can't claim to speak for those who aren't, but I do know as a, as a black man, um, there is a certain way that we are taught to carry ourselves in public in mixed company. Because we feel like in the, some essence, we represent, we may be the only black people that you guys know. We wanna represent well. I think that goes back to even integration. Uh, my father tells me stories about when integration happened. And again, we're not talking about very, very long ago because our parents went through this, you went through this, so we understand it, but when you were bused to uh, the white school or the whites came to the black school, whatever, it was like, look guys, you are going to represent us, you put your best foot forward. You're going to that white school, you be the best, you get the best grades, you do all those things. Don't let us hear that bad reports from the teacher because you are representing us when you go. And so when we come in, you know, if, if the other little kids run around, on, uh, uh, run around the church and run around on the chairs, I don't want my son running on there because I don't want y'all to see the little black boy running around on the chairs. <laughs> I don't know what y'all thinking. The white people don't care. <laughs> the white people don't care. They just carefree, running on the chairs, yeah, jumping up right. and down. That's right. You know, it's all good for them. It's when I come in there, here. I'm like, look, y'all get y'all stuff together because, it's, and this may be wrong, obviously, um, it shouldn't be this way. But you, you have a feeling that you are representing your culture. Yeah. And that when people see you do certain things, um, it, it's a reflection on your race. Um, but when they do it, it's okay. And that even goes to outside of the church. That goes to, 
you know, when you see kids riot and stuff, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids riot after, after games, when teams win, win uh, football games or basketball games. They overturn cars and everything. And we see a picture of that and we're like, oh, that's cool. A bunch of white kids turning over cars. You know, they're celebrating. When black folks do it, it's looting. Right. You know, and they're doing the same thing. And so there is this perception that we, you know, internalize and we bring into the church that, you know, we have to act, we have to watch how, how we act. And obviously, once we get to know you all and everything like that, the guard gets let down. But when you come into a situation that you don't know, um, there is a certain uh, expectation that you have for yourself as, as, well, as, as well as your children. Um, again, I think that it, it, it points to the fact of, of getting to know people, um, the fact of, of unity and oneness. Uh, you, you hit on it earlier, but um, oneness is something that obviously Scripture teaches it teaches us that we are of one blood, clearly. Right. Physically, we're one. But also, it teaches us that oneness reflects the unity of the Father, and oneness is his will for us as believers. Um, when we talk about this issue of diversity, a lot of times um, as, as churches, we want to become more diverse. The question is why. Why do we want to become more diverse? Are we want, do we want to become more diverse just for diversity's sake? Or do we want to become more diverse because more people are being brought into the household of faith? More people are receiving the gospel. More people are becoming Christians. We are fulfilling the Great Commission. There's a reason why we want to have diversity, not just for diversity's sake. Amen. So, the, honestly, diversity um, should be a manifestation of the gospel being preached. Yep. So, so, in Galatians, when Peter, being a Jew you know, didn't want to sit and eat the food of the Gentiles. And then he goes and he's eating with the Gentiles. And Paul comes and calls, and, and it, no, his, his friends come, the Jewish friends come. And he's like, oh, I don't want to eat with you guys anymore. And Paul says, you hypocrite. Right. How dare you, in light of the gospel, say you don't want to eat with the Gentiles? When we see what Christ did for you. We see how he commanded you to welcome all people and to preach the gospel to all nations. How, how dare you hypocritically withhold that from other people? Um, and so we are all subject to, I think, gravitate in our own little circles. Football coaches call, talk about it all the time when they talk about um, losers gravitate in little circles and talk about other people. But winners are able to expand and engulf the whole team um, and have relationships with everyone on the team. Um, we are, are called to, to biblical oneness, and that's about embracing and not necessarily changing the, the differences that we have, for example, if you don't like soul music, God's not calling you to just change all your tastes and the things that you like. He is calling you, though, to embrace those that do and see the diversity as a plus. I mean, this is something that's positive. Um, he created us different so that we could enjoy those differences, um, not so we could just have uniformity. You know, uh, a lot of times there's this idea that diversity and oneness, we've all got to be the same. No, we don't have to all be, all be the same, but we do have to be able to work together for the kingdom and understand that everybody's different niche and everybody's different ethnicities and talents are on purpose so that we can reach the world for, the, for Christ. Yep. Yeah, well, um, I, I have to confess, a, um, I, I would have a, a, a bit of a diversity problem in two categories. Uh, one, I'm, I'm, I don't foresee myself coming together with you about rap music. Uh, just not going to happen. I know. It's so and, hard. And, I'll talk about it in the book. And though. country music as well. So black people and rednecks, for me, uh, <laughs> are just a problem uh, because of the music. Um, wow, we've got five minutes left. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, you can't go anywhere. It's raining, huh? <laughs> hey, what is it about New Orleans people can't go in the rain? <laughs> I swear, I've been, I've been here for three years, and if you have an event, it's like, well, I think it's going to be raining. I'm like, are you going to walk? I don't understand. Like, you're getting in your car, right, and you have an umbrella. What is the deal with the rain? It's like, oh, my gosh, I got to have a baby, but it's raining. I'm just going to hold it in and cross my legs. I can't. I can't go to the hospital, it's raining, it's raining. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, let me ask you this last, last question, and this is a big, is a big word, well, maybe in the future as a church, unpack it a little bit. Um, and it's the word loyalty. Right, we grow up being loyal to certain things, like this is a room loyal to the New Orleans Saints, all except for one person in particular that I can think of, but the rest of us here are loyal to the Saints. Got to get a job, whoever, whoever cutting the check. <laughs> loyal. Uh, we have family loyalties. There are people in the room here who would have loyalties to male and female issues. Mm -hmm. and, and those issues, and, and black and white issues, become issues of loyalty, and they they get an upgrade in their importance to us. At some point, we're fighting for these things because mm -hmm. we have a connection to them that's very important. Right, but when we open the Bible and the Bible speaks to humanity, it installs a new loyalty. Yeah. It installs a kingdom of God loyalty. It installs a king who is the king over all of us. It in installs a spiritual ancestry loyalty that, in my view sits in a category that nothing else comes close to. Now, I, and then a comment on this, because you and I talked a little bit about this. It's not wrong to be loyal to things. It's not yeah. wrong, you know, unless it's rap music. Uh, it's not wrong to be loyal to things. But there is a loyalty that needs to be preeminent over any of our other loyalties. Yeah. So yeah. how would you help us as a mixture of black and white to deal with our loyalties? There, there's black loyalties, there's white loyalties. Mm -hmm that are gonna interfere with what is our primary loyalty. Yeah, definitely. Um, we are encouraged by our friends, our family, uh, the world to be loyal to uh, the flesh, um, to be loyal to our fleshly relationships, to our, um, our family ties. Uh, you know, blood is, is thicker than water, you know, all those things. Um, but that's not the biblical example we get. Uh, you know, Jesus showed us in the book of John when he met with the Samaritan woman. He, he crossed really family, ethnic lines, you know, being a Jew, and Samaritans were dogs. They were right. the offspring of the Assyrians and the Jews. The Jews wanted nothing to do with them. <clears throat> Jesus crossed those lines of ethnicity. Uh, he crossed the lines of gender by even speaking to, being a teacher, even speaking to a woman. Um, he crossed so many lines. And then we see that the, the disciples were like, what are you doing? <laughs> You're wrong for that. So there are times in your life where you've had friends maybe of another race and, you, and spoke well of them. And your friends looked at you like, now you know that's about as far as that needs to go. Or there have been times when your son or your daughter brings home a black person um, or a white person. And you're like, well... All right, don't let this go too far. No, you can't use a comb, don't bring it home, right? You haven't heard that, have you? I, I haven't. I don't that's have a black, much hair left. That's a black, that's a, that's a black joke for y'all. <laughs> if you can't use your comb, don't bring her home. I'm glad I taught y'all something. Thank you, thank you. Let's... Let y'all in a little bit. Let y'all in a little bit. 
my point is that our family ties, nowhere in Scripture, especially when it comes to multiracial um, relationships, interracial relationships, that's not in Scripture. I remember my father telling me, and, and um, you bring home, don't bring home no Hittite women, no Jebusite women, no Canaanite women. What he was saying was, you bring somebody home that is a believer. Right. Amen. First and foremost. That's right. Now, we're going to make jokes and have fun, you know, of course. But the primary thing you look for in a mate is do they love the Lord? Are they a believer? That's right. Not if they're white and if they went to Jesuit high school. Y'all love high schools. <laughs> um, or, or if they went to Lakeview or whatever it is. If they're on your, your soccer team or whatever it is, that, that's not what you look for. Number th one thing you look for from Scripture is are they, have they been adopted into the family of God? And so our loyalties, our, our, our physical distinctions and loyalties have got to fall away. That's not primary anymore. Now, that's easier said than done for all of us. We all see with the natural. We all want to be with people that look like us or think like us or agree with things that we say. But our primary responsibility is to him, not us. Amen. That's right. And we spit in his face when we put the physical above the spiritual. Nowhere in Scripture is, it, is that taught. Right. Um, and so if there is a, a family loyalty, you get together with your family, and they encourage you to make coarse jokes about black people. They encourage you to think a certain way about them. You tell them to be quiet. You stand up for that. You have children that are watching you. It's hard to do when you've got family members. I understand. But our loyalty is to him. Our loyalty, as we talked about in the verse earlier, Colossians, was to put off those things and to put on other things. Um, and so they're even in this body. I'm not sitting here um, uh, naive enough to say that just because we're in a church, nobody has issues uh, when it comes to race. Come on, seriously. I know there are things going on in this church. I know for a fact that there have been comments made to certain people I know for a fact there are certain looks that are given. I know for a fact that there is an unwritten code when it comes to what you do and what you don't do, what you say and what you don't say when it comes to this specific topic. But our loyalty is to what Scripture says. And if it's not backed up in there, then that stuff's got to go. And it, needs, and it needs to be. And see, we need to identify these things for what they are. Pastor, it's sin. Right. And so when I said that, you know, it's not necessarily a, a skin problem, it's a sin problem, what I'm saying is obviously our skin is, you know, what we see and our skin is part of the issue in, in, in how we have inter interacted with each other in this country since we've all gotten here in 1619 or whatever. Um, but really it's the sin that needs to be identified and repented from if it's the sin of racism or of hate or of prejudice. Um, or of even uh, the way we speak about people, of slander, it's sin that needs to be repented from in our life. It needs to be identified as such. It's not okay. It's not just part of this is just how we do it. No. So those loyalties um, have to be sh shed, kind of like a, like, a, like a reptile coming through the process of shedding the old skin. It needs to be peeled off and thrown away with and moved forward so that we can even start to relate to each other. And then that's to be a total renewing process. In, 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 every, in any aspect of our life, any sin that, that holds us, there's a continual process of regeneration. This is no different. A lot of times we look at this area and say, right. you know, this is a one-time fix, or maybe we just don't even look at it as, a, as an issue because this is just how we talk and how we do things. 
But in any area of our life, um, that's to be a continual regeneration process where we can say, oh, my, mm, the attitude I had to that person, man, that, 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 that wasn't right. I right. need to repent from those things. That's good. We have to be able to be honest with ourselves with not just what we say, but even how we think. And that goes for white, black. Um, I was in Montana a few weeks ago speaking, and I was talking kind of on this, this topic, and there's only 0.6% black people in Montana. <laughs> I looked it up. I wanted to know what I was getting into. I told you. There are 1,023,000 people that live in the state of Montana. There's 0.6% black people. There's something like, you know, 6,000 or so black folks. So I'm talking, and then afterwards, somebody came up to me and said, you know, everything was great. You know, we, for us, it's about Native Americans. So they don't have the black-white thing. They have the Native American white thing. And so in our situation, obviously, it's the black-white thing, but the point is, no matter what it is, no matter what race, no matter what part of the world you're in, it's still the same. Right. People right. have a sin problem when it comes to these physical loyalties, um, and it needs to be addressed, especially in the church. Amen. Let me let you close, and I know we're past time, so you get a, a real brief shot at this. But this is, uh, you know, for maybe there's some here who... You're not necessarily super concerned with how does the church figure out how to be the church. Maybe you're just trying to deal with relating to God at all and how these issues in your life affect you. And you've not really thought about how to do this as a church. You said something and towards the end of your book. You talk about I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own sin. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution. So when we do this, you share with folks, what is that solution and how can they respond to the solution God has provided? The solution is God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. The solution is understanding that a holy God must judge sin. And understanding that in the beginning, he created us to have fellowship with him. And because of our sin, we were separated from him. And the only way to be made right with the holy God and not get the judgment, the death, the penalty, the hell that we deserve is by faith and trust in the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The fact that we are separated and we are condemned already. The Bible says, I share with you John 3.16. But the next part of that verse is that Christ didn't come to condemn because we're condemned already. Part of the lie of Satan is that I'm a good enough person, I have time to make my decision. No, your decision's already been made because of the sin you were born with. You're already on your way to hell, separate from a living God. And the only way you are brought to life out of death is through his son Christ. And so it takes repentance, it takes faith, it takes a decision that we all have to make um, when it comes to what we do with his son. So if you're here this morning and, and you don't know Christ and you're looking at us like, you know, what, what, what are we talking about? The time of salvation is now. And there's no time like the present to ensure your future security, but there's also no time like the present to become alive. We can't, we can't deal with the issues of this world in our own power. Right. And, and part of being a believer is not just about, as we call it, fire insurance and about going to heaven when we die. Part of being a believer is living now. Eternal life is knowing Christ. Eternal life is knowing God right now. That's eternal life. 
having the power to deal with these issues, these physical issues of race, of uh, gender, of ethnicity, of economics, only happens through his power. It only happens when the scales of our physical eyes are dropped and we're able to see people the way that he does. And we only can do that through the blood of his son. And so the Bible says it's simple. It's through repentance and faith. And so as we close, uh, we're going to pray. Yep. And um, if you in your own, your own heart don't know him, uh, if, if you've come here today and you've heard some things about religion and you've gone to church a little bit and you know some of the answers like I did, but you don't know in your heart of hearts, if you are saved, you don't know in your heart of hearts, if your sin has been forgiven or if you have a relationship with the living God, if you don't know um, that um, what it means for him to die for you, now is the time. And there are no magic words. There's no magic place. Um, there's no magic situation where these things happen. The Bible says that as soon as you put your faith in him, you pass from death to life. And that he has come to give us life and that more abundantly. Um, The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of his glory. But his gift is eternal life. And there's only one way. Um, Media, the outside, will want you to believe that there's multiple ways. That if you're a good person and you're good outweighs your bad. If you've done more good things than bad things, you'll be okay. The Bible says that you had a test. And all of you all failed. If you had 99.9% right, you still got enough. You're still separated from him. Only Christ lived a perfect life. Only he lived a holy enough life to reunite us to God. So we put our faith in his holiness, not in ours, so that it will be counted on our behalf. So as we pray, um, you do your business with God. If you don't know him, now is the time. You want to lead us? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to speak to this body. I thank you for all that you've done in this church and all you'll continue to do. Lord, I thank you um, for the willingness to find common ground, Lord, to, um, to reach out across racial barriers, God. I thank you for the willingness to live um, and be a light on a hill, God. I thank you for the willingness to be obedient to your word and for the willingness to repent in this area, Lord, and to forgive in this area. Lord, I pray for those who don't know you right now, Lord, that you will haunt them until they do. Lord, that you will rough them up on the way home in the rain, God. Lord, that you will haunt them in their sleep at night. Lord, I pray that they will give their lives to you, Lord, not just so they meet you in heaven, Lord, but so that they can be your tools on this earth. Lord, there is no way for us to be made right with you other than your son. And God, I thank you, Lord, that you gave us your son. He lived a perfect life for us that he paid the price which was bloodshed for us, a price that we could not pay. Mm-hmm. Lord, that he paid a debt that we owed that we could not pay, God. Right. And Lord, I thank you that only through repentance and faith in him mm-hmm. we can be made right with you. Mm-hmm. Lord, I pray that for the men here, Lord, that they will be strong for their families and their wives. God, I pray they will teach their children to live for you. Yes. Lord, I pray that they will be examples when it comes to this area of race. Mm-hmm. Lord, that when the TV comes on, Lord, that they will have proper responses. Lord, I pray they will be honest with their children when they make mistakes, which I know they will because we all do, and say, Lord, I shouldn't have acted like that. I shouldn't have said that about that person. I pray their kids will be able to see not a perfect man, Lord, but one who follows you and one who is willing to admit his mistakes. Lord, I pray for repentance in this area, and Lord, I pray for breakthrough. Lord, I pray for the women here, God, that they uh, will be great mothers, God, to their children, wives to their husband, Lord. Lord, that their household will be one that when people of all races walk in, they will feel welcome, God. Lord, that they will create an atmosphere, Lord, of love and of care. 
Lord, and one of truth. Lord, your truth trumps all fear. Lord, your truth is what's most important, God. Your truth is greater than any loyalty or any trend in our life, God. Lord, may we have total um, commitment, Lord, to your truth. Mm -hmm. And, Lord, may we continue to find it and search for it, God. Yes, God. Lord, we haven't arrived, Lord. And if mm -hmm. there are areas in our life, God, that fall short, I pray that you would reveal them to us yes. so that we can walk accordingly. Lord, bless everyone as they go home. And, Lord, I thank you again for this body. Lord, I pray for great things over this church. Yes. I pray for the leadership, God, that they will continue to follow you with their whole heart. Yes. Lord, that they will never back down to what people say. Lord, they will never back down to expectations. Lord, that they will stand firm even when times get hard. And I pray that you will bless this church, Lord, not only with members. Lord, I pray that you will bless it, Lord, financially. Lord, I pray that you will bless it with land. But most importantly, God, I pray that you bless this church to be a witness in the city of New Orleans and in the state of Louisiana, God, and that people from this church, Lord, will be sent out across the world, Lord, to give the gospel to those who need to hear it. Lord, that when people think of Lakeview Christian, God, they would think of a body of believers who stand firm for you, a body of believers who love their fellow man, God, a body of believers who are willing, Lord, to repent where they have been wrong, people that care about other people, God, and people who care and love you. And that they will turn neither to the right nor to the left, but that they will always go straight ahead and chase after you, Lord. Yes. Lord, we thank you for this day. Indeed. And we pray uh, blessings over the children, God, mm -hmm. as they grow up to take over and that we pass this faith on to them. Yes. A pure and right faith, Lord, that they may do the same for the next generation. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name we pray. Yes, Amen. Amen. Kirsten, Kirsten, are you here? Kirsten? No, she's not. She might. She's getting the kids. Getting All the five kids. of them. Yeah, a bunch of them are. Well, bro, thank you. I want, I want to make sure, and and we can do this not just not right now, but in the future. Please be praying for them as they transition to a new place. Uh, I think I saw the, the news that, that Ben was signing with Baltimore and I texted him, I said, man, say it isn't so. But part of me actually had a sense in my heart that, the, that, that God's got a purpose for you being there. And there are people there that you're gonna connect with that, that you didn't need to be here. You needed to be there. And as much as I hate the idea that you're not gonna be here, <laughs> we're gonna celebrate that you're there. And so you are a missionary to Baltimore as far yes, as we're concerned, we're praying for you, and yes, you guys are dear in our hearts. Am I, am I Lakeview's first missionary to Baltimore? Uh, yes, you would be our only missionary to Baltimore. <laughs> yes, so. <laughs> Thanks, pal. Bless you guys.